This is our third Sunday morning in, in our new facility. We're excited about that. And again, I'm just going to continue to say thank you because I believe just about every single one of you played a dynamic part in bringing this together. And, and I'm just going to encourage you week after week. Can we bring these lights up too? Is that possible or is that going to be? All right. That's cool. All right. I don't know if you were doing that for effect or, or whatnot, but I haven't started the sermon, so don't start recording yet. But uh, this will always be a means to an end. A building is always a means to an end. Your finances is a means to an end. Do you go out and work every day to try and just make a lot of money and let it sit in the bank? You use the money for your needs, right? And, and this building is to be able to meet needs. Jesus Christ has rescued us. He has given us a plan. He's given us a purpose that we, would, we want to delight in. And we're going to continue through the book of Joshua as God is revealing this awesome plan, this purpose for our life. And this, this building right here is simply a means to that end of making disciples of all nations. Amen, church? All right. Are we awake this morning? Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Awesome. So a story is told about a gentleman. You know, have you ever read, read those books about uh, stupid criminals or stupid things that criminals do and they get caught? Now, this is one of them in which a guy walks into a, a convenience store. He's got a gun and he is shaking it around saying, give me all of the money in the cash box. And so the guy's pulling all the money out and he hands it to him. And, but the, the criminal, the, the burglar, robber is not content with this. And he says, okay, I, I want you to give me that, that big bottle right there of alcohol, whatever the label on it was. And the guy says, well, wait a second, you don't look 21. And the guy says, but I am 21. And he says, I'm sorry. The, the clerk says, but I can't give it to you if you're not 21. He says, but I'm 21. And the guy says, then you're going to have to prove it. So the guy whips out his wallet. He shows him his driver's license. He says, here, don't you see? I am 21. Sticks it back in, walks out. Two hours later, the police find him two streets down because as he waved his driver's license, the guy looked at him, knew his name, and knew exactly where he lived. You know, how do they say it? The best laid plans of mice and men um, often, there we go, often go awry. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Have you ever had a plan that didn't go the way you wanted it to? How about a project? Oh, my goodness. I've told you the story about changing the spark plugs on my van. It's a conversion van. It's got what they call the doghouse. Yeah, and... <laughs> Anyways, that doghouse has to be removed, and you're supposed to try and replace the spark plugs. Yeah, good luck on that. Yeah, it took me 12 hours. Um, my plans didn't work, and so finally I had to turn my... 12 hours. How many of you have ever taken 12 hours to, ex to replace six spark plugs? Yeah. <laughs> she did so vicariously that day through her husband and said, thank you so very much. Yeah, I even broke one of them, so I had to replace it. So technically, it was seven. <laughs> but isn't it nice when plans actually come together? I mean, putting the, the building here together, and they had to knock walls down. And so we just had a, a blueprint of far, as far as what it looked like and you know, plans as far as how we were going to use rooms and what we were going to do and who we would hire and so on. And, and 
I'm going to tell you right now that if God has birthed a plan in your heart, a purpose, I'm going to tell you this right now, you will most definitely experience opposition to that plan. Because anything that is birthed from the heart of God and he's conveying it to you to walk in, then you're going to experience opposition. Don't be surprised if there's persecution. Don't be surprised if there's closed doors. Don't be surprised if the devil does absolutely everything he can, pulling out all the stops to stop you from walking in God's purpose for your life. That's just a reality check. Last week we looked at success. What does it mean to walk in success? And we discovered that, that success is not just, it is not a destination it is a process. It is a journey. You know, we'd have to look around the world and say, well, who is successful? And many times it's someone who has a lot of money or someone who has gained a lot of fame. And you have to step back and say, is that truly success? Success is not a destination. It is walking in God's purpose for our life. Remember Acts 13, 36. It said, for when David had served God's purpose in his generation, then he fell asleep. What was his purpose? What was this overarching uh, success story of David? It is because he walked in God's purpose. And so we're going to seek to discover some of this purpose of God. And I'm going to just tell you this right now. There is a general purpose in which all believers in Jesus Christ seek to walk in and that is to please God and that is to live a life that impacts others so that our life is a daily life that is poured out both for God and for one another for the world God's purpose is to be able to experience this abundant life that he offers us specifically God has a purpose Many times we, we have this concept of a calling and that calling sometimes is what drives us. And I, I, I need you to know there is a calling of God on my life to be a pastor, but that's not all. I am called to be a husband. I'm called to be a father. I, I have been called to be a business owner. And, and there have been many pastors who have been called to pastor, but when they became a pastor, did they finally arrive no. I mean, I know one who became a pastor and then he became an evangelist and became a teacher and then became, he, God moved, used him in the prophetic. He functioned apostolically in, in planting churches and such. But this idea of calling can sometimes be rather nebulous. And I'm just going to let you know, God every week has a call for some on your life for something. Now, there are things that plans that he has down the road for you. I'm not going to disagree with that at all. You were created as God's workmanship in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Ephesians 2.10. God has a plan for your life, and you can choose to walk in it or not. Last week, we looked at three things very quickly. How is Joshua to fulfill God's purpose in his life, uh, for his life, in his generation? Number one, we realized God challenged him, Joshua, be strong and courageous. And I mentioned when we are taking the land, and I'm going to elaborate on that in just a moment, but when, you're, when we're taking the land, whatever that means for you, 
that means you were going to experience opposition. And God knew this for Joshua. There was going to be tremendous opposition. I mean, for him, it was war. Can you think of war without opposition? Actually, just a little tidbit of information, we do know of a war in which there was no opposition. And if you were to look at Egyptian history, then you would find that a people group called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, the Hyksos, actually came into Egypt without a battle. The person who's recording this in this time, around 1400 or 1500 BC, which would probably be a more accurate date for this, the Hyksos came in and it says Egypt had been devastated. These, this people group, an Asian, that is an Eastern people group, people from the East, not the Orient necessarily, were, came in and they took the land without a struggle, it says. And might I just add that that is most probably during the time in which the reason why they came in without a battle is because the Egyptian army lay in the bottom of the Red Sea. But anyways, with every battle, apart from that, with, with every war, apart from that, there is a battle. And you're going to experience opposition. Joshua experienced opposition. And he challenged him, do not be terrified and do not be discouraged. You know, church, no sooner did I preach that sermon than that afternoon, the devil attacked me with discouragement. And I, had, and I, I was sharing with my family. And I, I just said, you know, I heard someone preach recently about not being discouraged. And maybe I should walk in that, huh? But it's going to be, it's so easy to get discouraged, it's so easy to be afraid as you're moving into new, into new territory, taking new ground. Number two, the challenge was to meditate on and obey God's word because the world has a, a plan. The world has a way to do things. In business, one of the ways to do things is to be a strong leader, but to allow selfish ambition for your promotion to be your goal in life. And it's all about you and what you can arrive at and what you can accomplish. And the, the truth is just the opposite. Success in business, and, and some business owners have realized this, integrity is at the heart, should be at the heart of every business. And when people see integrity, there is this trust factor. And when a, when a company truly has integrity, you're going to be amazed at how people not just trust them, they want their service and they want to tell people about their service. There's too many businesses out there that lack integrity. They're filled with selfish ambition. The world's way doesn't work. God's way does. But also, by obeying God's word, we do not obligate God to bless us. God is never obligated to do anything for us. He is the king who sits on the throne and we are his servants. Let me word it this way. We obey God by, because by doing so, we position ourselves to receive his blessing. That doesn't make God obligated, but he does say he will fulfill his purpose. And now I mention this because many times as we're serving and laboring, we have this expectation. Okay, God, now that I'm serving you, you're going to do all of these awesome things. Many times when we watch on television, the televangelist was saying, if you follow Jesus, he's going to take care of all of your problems. I'm kind of summarizing here. They don't say it quite so plainly, but that is what they're saying. And, and my Bible tells me if you're going to follow Jesus, then you're going to want to expect hard times and persecution. Woohoo! All right. It does have a great retirement plan, by the way. But the truth is following Jesus does not make your problems go away, but it does do this. 
by obeying Jesus, he gives us the ability to walk through difficulties, which church will always be there. And they will be there for a reason to sharpen us, to help us, to actually even guide us at times. God works all things together for our good. That is his promise. And also by obeying him, we now position ourselves for his blessing. And he blesses as he sees fit. So do you see the difference here? I mean, we're not obligating God, but by obeying him, I am positioning myself to be blessed by God. Deuteronomy 28, the blessings of God and the curses of God that they spoke uh, at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal when they came into the promised land. You can write that down, Deuteronomy 28, and you can see the blessings that God says that he will bring about. But he is not absolutely specific about how he's going to go about doing this. God does love to bless. And then lastly, I, I was only able to touch on this very briefly, but that as the, the, the two and a half tribes were challenged, you're going to cross this river. See, your land has already been taken. We've already fought the battles. You're gonna, you can settle in the lands, but you need to be obligated to go with us across the Jordan River to help your brothers take the land for their family. I'm not going to reiterate all the reasons why they were taking the land and, and just analyzing the ethics of that that people have done. Uh, I'm not going to reiterate that again this week. But they were obligated. The brothers were obligated to help their other brothers take the land. And we are obligated to one another to help each other. And so I challenged you. Challenged you. I said, we need to be what? Fire lighters, not fire fighters. Excuse me, Sam. Uh, that type of fire that you fight is awesome. Thank you for risking your life every day that you go to work for us and for others in fighting fires. But the fire I'm talking about is the fire that God places in the believer's heart and ignites the believer with a passion to follow Christ no matter what the cost and to rescue the lost, to make disciples, to fulfill God's purpose in our generation. And we are going, we want to, we want to encourage people in this. We want them to follow along with us in this, in this purpose of God. And so together we do this. You see that displayed in the New Testament church. We're going to look at that just a bit this morning. But after these, chapter 1, after these prerequisites for success in taking the land, as we turn to Joshua chapter 2 this morning, we see there in that chapter it reveals the beginning of how. How they were to take the land. And we see a plan begin to unfold. And this is a good plan. This is a plan that will actually succeed. Isn't it nice when you pull a plan together and it succeeds? And, and so Joshua has a plan. And I'm going to read to you chapter 2, verses 1 through 24, if we could put those verses up as you see. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. 
She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the, flax, the stalks of flax. She had laid out on the roof. Good place, by the way, on those flat roofs to dry things like flax. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know, now I'm going to insert the actual Hebrew that's here because it's not the Lord. That would be Adonai. But he's, she says, I know, and this is a Canaanite woman. I know that Yahweh has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how Yahweh, that's God's personal name, his covenantal name. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when Yahweh gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills, to the pursuers, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you swear, excuse me, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she, she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. 
Before I get into this chapter, I, I want to share three ways of application as we go through this book. And I've kind of touched on them a little bit, but I just want to mention to you three ways. With each sermon, each section of Joshua that I preach on, um, I am personally going to be focusing on at least one of these three. You, however, may find that application somewhat helpful, but you may find it's helpful in another one of these three. And I want you to feel free in doing this, but write those things down. As you're on the back of the, uh, on the, back of the bulletin, it says sermon notes. I want you to write personal notes that the Spirit of God speaks to you. I believe right now that as we're going through this message, the Spirit of God is beginning to speak to some hearts and, and remind us of things, encourage us of things, challenge us in some things. Write those down. That's a word that God is speaking and dropping into your heart. But here are three ways in which we're going to find this apply. Number one, the promised land represents three things. Number one, it will represent your salvation, the inheritance that you received. Understand that Egypt represents slavery. That is our slavery to sin. This is upheld in the New Testament, by the way. This is not just a, a neat little analogy. It is something that God crafted in history as, as a way for us to see the reality of salvation. And by the way, when they were rescued from Egypt, they instituted, God had them institute a, a ceremony. Do you happen to remember what that ceremony was? It was called the Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb at the cross. He was the one sacrificed in our stead so that when God comes when God looks upon us he would pass over us because of the blood of the lamb of Christ upon us now this is a ceremony that was actually instituted as a result of what happened that night in which uh, the firstborn of all of Egypt were taken and and God he says he did this because Egypt had taken his firstborn Israel so not to get into that, but Egypt represents our slavery. The exodus then would represent our deliverance. And then coming into the promised land would represent the inheritance. Ephesians 1, we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus and enumerates some of those. Being adopted as his sons, predestined from the foundations of the earth. This inheritance that we receive and so on. And having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13. So there's many promises now that we inherit. Number two, so we're talking about salvation with number two. No, number one. Number two, it's, it's various blessings that God desires to give to his people as, as we, this promised land would therefore represent basically God's promises in general. And those promises would be numerous. Those promises would be that if you, uh, if you follow him with regard to financial principles, just as an example, he will bless us in our finances. Again, God is not obligated in a specific way to bless you, but can I testify that as I have sought to align my finances, my business finances with God's principles, and I believe thereby positioning myself for his financial blessing, I'm not going to say God's made me a millionaire. No, he hasn't. Not yet. Mm -mm. Not that that's even a desire in my heart, truthfully. If God gives me a million dollars, I think I would want to bless churches and bless missions and so on. But God has met our needs 
every single month. And there have been times in which there was not enough money, but God came through at the 11th hour and 59th minute and many times the 59th and a half second. Thank you, Lord. But he came through and he fulfilled his promises. Okay, so these are the blessings that we can, we can walk in. And then number three, and it would also be with regard to a call and various calls that he has upon our life, whether they're future or present callings and such. And then number three, taking the land, this promised land, would be analogous. And this is what we're going to be looking at more specifically here. And that is, as we have been called to reach the lost. Now, that kind of fits well, but in some ways it doesn't. Because when... They went into the land, the people, it was a war with the people. We are not seeking to win the lost by engaging them in battle. We are, if there is a battle, it is a spiritual battle because there are demons of darkness, the Bible tells us about, that hold the lost captive. Before I turned 14, I was held captive to do the will of Satan. Not too many people who, who, who are lost in their sin. If you walk up to them, will readily acknowledge this. But you, and I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but how many of them would say, yeah, yeah, sure. When you say, well, did, did you realize that you're actually held captive to do the will of Satan? That's what the Bible, the Bible says. What? No, I'm not. I'm free to do whatever I want. But the, the, the truth is they're, they're enslaved. I was enslaved to my sin. I was a sin addict. Before I came to Christ, I was a sin addict. And I wanted to do the right thing, but as a young man, it was so hard. But when I came to Christ, he began to break these bondages in my life. Jesus didn't just come to forgive me of my sins, but to rescue me from my sins. That was the prophetic word the angel gave to Joseph. Call him Jesus because he will rescue or save, same word, rescue his people from their sins. And so... We are engaging in a spiritual battle, but in, we're not putting people to death, church. We are rescuing them. We are winning them, okay? And so in that way, it's going to be very different. I'm going to touch on that in, in just a, a little bit later. But I, we're, going to, we're going to look at this. Establishing God's kingdom. This is number three, how we can apply this idea of a promised land. Establishing God's kingdom on earth through Christ's rule in men's hearts. I'm going to say that one more time. We are coming into this new land or taking the land is analogous to establishing God's kingdom on earth through Christ's rule in men's hearts. Now, I am not espousing what's been commonly called kingdom now theology. Do you know what kingdom now theology is? If you're in the theology class, I hope you were, you're not raising your hand right now, but you're, yeah, I know kingdom now theology. We looked at it. We, we talked about it when we looked at the kingdom of God. Kingdom now theology basically says that God's kingdom is extending his rules. So if I'm in a business and I lay down Christian rules, I am extending God's kingdom. That's kingdom now theology. There's a whole lot more to it. And, and, and I find that it, it tends to present some good ideas, but for the most part, it truly misses the mark and is not biblical. Extending God's kingdom has nothing to do with, ex with extending his rules. Extending God's kingdom has everything to do with extending God's rule. Not his rules, his rule. Now, I'm all in favor of nations establishing the, 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 the principles of the word of God, the laws of God. 
those that transfer over into the New Testament, to be more specific. And that's what, that's what America did. We're, we're getting rid of the Bible and prayer and distancing ourselves from our religious roots. And as a result, a lot of laws are being made, and not the least of which would be abortion, in which we're allowed to take people's lives depending on their age. Extending God's kingdom has nothing to do with extending his rules, though that is a good thing, but it's extending his rule in hearts of men. So keep these things in mind as we go through the book of Joshua. So taking the land, the point here as we go through chapter 2 is it requires a strategy. Write this down, Proverbs 16.9. You don't have to turn there. Proverbs 16.9, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19.21, write that one down. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You see, it's, it's not that planning is a bad thing. We actually see planning, and we see it here in Joshua 2, but planning is a good thing. But know this, that as you plan, which is a good thing, God's purposes are what will prevail. And so we want to submit our plans and pray that these plans are, have been birthed from the heart of God because those are the plans that he blesses. Many times we come up with this awesome idea. Yes, God, would you bless this plan? And God is really saying, I need you to seek my heart because I want to give you my plan and birth that plan in your heart. And when that happens, I will bless that plan. That's the way God wants his people to walk in. Seeking God for his plans that he blesses those plans. And as we look at this plan, the first thing that we see is that Joshua sends out two spies. They're going to spy out the land. Wait, wait, wait. Back the strategy truck up for one moment. You're going to send out spies? Wow, that sounds awfully familiar. Like we, we've been down this road before and it didn't turn out really well. If you were to turn to Numbers 13, Numbers 13, verses 1 through 3, we actually see that Moses did this 40 years earlier, and it did not go well at all. And he actually sent out 12 spies, one spy, each spy representing their tribe. And, and I realize that Josh has those verses here. I'm just about there. There we go. I am there. Joshua, excuse me, Numbers Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. For each ancestral tribe, from each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. And so it's very clear that this was God's plan. Moses inaugurated the plan and he actually says in verse 17 that he sent them to explore Canaan this is what he says go up through the Negev and on into the hill country that would be the, the southern portion of the land of Canaan uh, see what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak few or many what kind of land they live in is it good or bad what kind of towns they live in are they walled or fortified what's the soil like is the is the is it fertile or poor what are the trees like bless etc etc and so now as we look at Joshua chapter 2 they are doing the same thing except it doesn't say that God 
told Joshua to do this. It might be fair to assume that God has told him this, just like he told Moses, and so he's sending out spies. But I'm kind of wondering here, if I have not read Joshua chapter 2, I would be wondering at this point, what's going to happen this time? Because do you remember what happened later in chapter 13? I'm going I'm to read it to you. It says that they came back, and in chapter 31, excuse me, in verse 31, it says, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Verse 28 says, the people are very large. This is the Moses generation. This is how they responded in this situation. They sent out spies. Ten of them came back with a bad report. Two of them came back with a good report. The good report we find in chapter 14, verse 7. And it says there, in the land, this is Joshua. Caleb gave a good report a little bit earlier. Now Joshua says this. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Do you see the urgency and the confidence, the faith that Joshua has? But the Moses generation, their voice rose up in disbelief. They could not trust God in the face of what seemed to them to be overwhelming odds. We can't do this. Look how large they are. And so the Moses generation said, the people in the land are too big. We will fail. But Joshua's generation said, no, 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 no. Our God is too big we will succeed. They say that in verse 24 of Joshua 2. It says, the Lord has surely given the, given the whole land into our hands. This is a good report that these spies are bringing back. The Lord will surely give the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So I'm going to just challenge you. Are we going to be like the Moses generation? And are we going to say this task is too big? The people are too big. Whatever this is and taking, it's too big. We'll fail. I will fail. Or are you going to be like the Joshua generation? And are you going to say, you know what? No, 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 no. Our God, my God is too big. He is too big. We will surely succeed. I will surely succeed. You will surely succeed. Because your God is too big. And whatever he bir is birthed from his heart, he will accomplish because he is far bigger than whatever opposition is out there. Okay? Now, again, I'm going to apply this in taking the land to what it means to extend God's kingdom. All right? How can we have God's strategy so that he will fulfill his purposes for my life, for your life. What kind of plan is God birthing in you to reach your neighbor? What kind of strategy is God giving you to reach your workmates, to reach the neighbors around us, the neighborhood? 
first of all, at least for us, when it comes to reaching our neighbors, we do have a plan. God has been birthing a plan. And I'm going to tell you this, church, we're not done with that. We're going door to door, and we want to meet our neighbors, and we want to find out what their needs are, and we want to love on our neighbors, and we want to try and meet those needs. And they may not tell us the first time we talk with them, but what about the third time? It took us over a month to, to do this, and we didn't touch every house. So when I say the third time, yet we're talking about over the next year or so as we do this. And, and maybe God will prosper and bless this idea, this desire to reach our neighbors around this place so that we do it longer than that. But we're seeking to go door to door and ask them, what are your needs? Uh, Diego and I, just this past Tuesday, we had an opportunity to go door to door. And I mentioned it to you. I uh, had an opportunity to, to probably talk to 15 to 20 homes. By the way, five of them were Puerto Rican. You people who came back and said, Pastor Mike, I didn't see very many minorities. And there's, there's filled with a number of minorities. I, I believe God has called us as a church to reach many of these minorities. Because that, that's, that's the collage of God's kingdom, is it not? It, it's not just white people over here or black people over here. It, it is a, when we get to heaven, it's going to be a collage of nationalities. You know one of the things, I'm, I'm getting off track here, but one of the things I'm really looking forward to when I get to heaven, the heaven when it comes to earth. I'm going to have my own resurrection body. And my goal, I, one of my goals is I want to meet people from every tribe and language and people group. I want to sit down. I want to say, uh, my wife will make a great, I won't say me, my wife will make a, well, she won't be my wife then, I guess, will she? Anyways, the, the, I'm not going to go down that road, but you will be really good friends. Anyways, you're probably wondering, Pastor, why did you even say that? I won't get into the scripture passage about that, but the truth is that, that I, I want to be able to taste their food. I want to listen to their music. I want to listen to their language. I think I'm going to be able to understand that. I, I, we may even learn other languages. There's probably going to be one language universally that we'll all speak. But the, the truth is, there, we will not know everything when we get to heaven. It will be a, an eternity of discovery because God is the only one who's omniscient and knows everything. We will be learning forever and ever and ever. We'll be growing in that sense. I mean, many people think, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be floating on a cloud, playing a harp. I hate playing a I'm going to be singing all the time. I have a terrible voice, man. And then I'm going to be doing things that are just so boring. When you get to heaven, it's going to be anything but boring, church. It is going to be exciting. It's going to be absolutely beyond your wildest dreams. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I would love to be able to have people from other cultures into my home. I would love to be able to learn from them. I'd love to be able to sing some of their songs. This idea of cultural diversity is awesome. And... So I want, I'm really, it's been on my heart to reach this neighborhood. Actually, I'm pointing this way because that's where the neighborhood is. And Diego and I had opportunity to share the gospel in depth with two people there, Jose and Jay. And you can be praying for Jose and Jay. Jose actually is moving this morning to Altamont. And I said, brother, I, my friend, I want to just let you know. I mean, we, we spoke to him for about 20 minutes and shared the entire gospel with him. Diego, you did an awesome job wherever Diego is. Awesome job. That was his, and he's, he's learning to, you know, in sharing the gospel and how you feel comfortable at the door with somebody. Not like this is the only way to evangelize church. Of course not. 
but we have a strategy. And we were just taking that step. You cannot fulfill these plans and these purposes if you don't take a step of action, if you don't do something. All right. When they went into the promised land and they set up camp at Gilgal that we'll be learning here shortly, that was their base of operation. They didn't say on a bullhorn to all the people groups around them, hey, come to us and we're going to defeat you. That's not how they took the land. They took the land by going to these cities. That's how they took the land. God gave them a strategy. And as they went, they succeeded. They didn't succeed when they refused to obey the word of God. And we're going to see some of those. But the truth is that God had a plan, birthed that plan. They were obedient to that plan, but they had to go. Go and make disciples of all nations, and I will send the rain. Okay, awesome rain, isn't it? I love that. My lawn is so desperately needing of it. But the analogy is so clear that when we go, God blesses. He truly will. But you got to go. We got to do something. So that's what they, they, they went. They didn't just wait for the people to go to them. For us, it is making disciples. Now, for them, for, the, for Joshua and his generation, taking the land was going to require battle. It was going to require war. And they did so against their enemies. The people in these neighborhoods are not our enemies. They are our friends, okay? But... Here is where the analogy fits and I believe fits well. For the people in Jericho and the surrounding cities throughout Canaan actually, God went ahead of the people of Israel and he instilled a fear even as God will instill an awe in the people around here. And I want to look at that in just a moment because it was that fear that the people were filled with that made them susceptible to defeat. God, as we're going to read some verses here, God went ahead and he established his reputation in the land of Canaan before the people even got there. Let's look at that for a moment. This is, this is curious, I think. He, first of all, Rahab says when he is talking with them, she says in verse uh, 9, I know that Yahweh, she uses his first name, if you will, his covenantal name, his personal name, Yahweh. Not, she, she doesn't say Baal. That would be another name, personal name, of a different God. She doesn't even just say Elohim, which is God. She's very specific here. I'm talking about a very specific God. His name is Yahweh. He's your God, though he is not the God of this land. He is your God, and we have heard of his reputation. She says, I know that Yahweh has given this land to you. She's already admitting it. She says, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. How did God extend his reputation to the people? How was it that his fame preceded the Israelites? It was by God doing Miracle upon miracle. The ten plagues in Egypt. That's not something that man could concoct. 
the parting of the Red Sea. That was not something that, that Moses was skilled at doing. The fact that he provided manna, quail. Now, that's not mentioned here, but it wasn't just that God was protecting his people. It was that he was also providing for his people. And it was miracle upon miracle that God was doing. And he was building up this reputation so that when they came into the land, they already had defeated Og and uh, Sihon. And these were kings of the Amorites. And they defeated them. I'm trying to remember which king it was. I believe it was Sihon, king of the Amorites. He had this bed. I'm, I'm trying to remember its exact dimensions, but it was 14 feet long. And I can only imagine that a bed like that would be made for a rather large man, not a guy six foot like myself. And there were giants in the land, this king most likely being one of them. But the truth is that the Israelites defeated him. The result is that terror struck at the hearts of these people. So that she goes on and she says this in verse 11, when we heard of it, all of these things, and especially when you defeated those Amorites, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh your God, this is how specific she is, for Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Understand the significance of this. She worshipped another god. Some of the gods, they, some of them, the, the, they believe the gods were the god of the desert. This is the god of fertility. This is the god of, of, the, uh, of plant growth. This is the god of various things. The god of rain. And so some of them were kind of more localized in heaven. Some of them were more on the earth operating. And she says this, your God is the God. Yahweh is the God in heaven above and on this earth below. And she was saying he is the supreme God. And in essence saying there is no other God in heaven and no other God on this earth. Who, he's not just up there, he's not just far away, but he's a God who is intimately involved in your lives. And it impacts her. It changes her. We know this because, number one, she was a prostitute. You talk about sin addictions. She was probably a very young lady. She has brothers and sisters. She's apparently not married. And she is sleeping with all of these men. She is addicted to this. And I don't know if you have ever read biographies or testimonies of women who have been in the prostitute ring and they have been set free from this. And the extensive damage that the kingdom of darkness has done in their lives, it is amazing. Some of them have been pulled out of that lifestyle and there was such an addiction to their pimp and to that lifestyle, they refused and they actually left that rescue facility and went back to the streets living this life. And they are so messed up and they do drugs and their lives have been torn apart and their self-image is in the trash heap. And if you were to talk with them, you would see that there has been such destruction and men taking advantage and then letting men take advantage of them and wounds and hurts. This was Rahab. She was not like the other inhabitants of Jericho. 
She did not align herself with her people. She realized they're melting in fear. But could you please save me? When we take the gospel and we are taking the land, we are extending God's kingdom, Christ and the gospel message embraces such people as Rahab. Not only was Rahab physically rescued, but there was such change in her life and she became a woman who was honored. Isn't that interesting? You know how I know she was honored? Because if you were to turn to Matthew chapter 1, there are four women, apart from Mary, the mother of Jesus, there are four women who are honored in Jesus' genealogy. Guess who one of them was? Rahab. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, we see her honored once again. There was something that when she chose to align herself with Yahweh, your God, who reigns in heaven above and on this earth below, there was something that changed in her life. This, this is exactly what God is wanting to do through us as we bring the gospel to the people around us, to our neighbors and the people at our workplace, to the neighborhoods. God wants to change people's life. We were, we were singing this morning about God's, or Meredith was mentioned, God's rescue plan. This is it, church. And this is what God is going to do. God is going to spread his reputation. He's going to spread his reputation at your workplace. He wants to spread his reputation in your neighborhood. He wants to do this through you. He wants to do this by God building testimonies in your life. Can I, I've shared this before, so I'm going to be super, super brief. But remember when Juliana got backed up into, and this vehicle, it was a Lincoln Navigator, backed up into her. A lady wrote down the license plate um, of this Navigator because as soon as she got into her van to get her, light, get her insurance card, she took off down I-4. She had backed up. It was totally her fault. She Instead of putting on the gas in drive, apparently was in reverse, and she backed up. It was a new navigator. And God did some awesome miracles so that even though the police could not track her, I came across that vehicle six days later, one in a million chance, and I was asked, could I paint her bumper? This damage, and I looked at it, and I looked at the license, I had the license plate memorized because I tried to look it up on the internet to no success. And I was just shocked. It was like, this is a God moment. And it was amazing. And I went in, and because I, I wanted to handle this right. This is not my place, my property. This is, I'm on a car dealership, and it's a, it's a Lincoln dealership. And so I want to handle this right. And I went to talk to the used car manager. And the guy who sold the vehicle to her came in at the very moment I was talking with him. And he said, no way. I was the one who sold this. Her name is, you know, and just... <laughs> Okay, and, and I went to the service manager, got the, got the information, gave it to the police. He took care of it. Yeah, unfortunately, 12 points were put to her name. She lost her license, but at least she wasn't put in jail. But the truth is that because of that incident, and I told the used car manager, I said, 
please understand this is a one in a million chance. And the only way this could happen was because God allowed it to. Because as a family, we have been praying. We cannot afford this. We need insurance and not mine, but theirs to pay for this. And so that's why I'm asking, what would you suggest we do? And throughout that coming week, even the general manager came to me. And he said, wow, I heard what happened. And man, someone's on your side. <laughs> and I had an opportunity. Just like, I had like 15 seconds to share about Jesus and before he ended up having to go in and I go on. You know, God wants to extend his reputation. God wants to do amazing things in your life. And when you're talking with people in your neighborhood, when you're talking with people door to door, God is going to open up an opportunity and you're going to be able to share. I mean, let me share with you something absolutely cool that God did in my life. And here's how God many times will do it. He wants to bring in, and we've covered this and when we were talking, when we were on our theme of grace, he wants to bring you to this point in which you can't, but he can. And that's when we are weak, his grace is enough. And he's, his strength is made perfect. Those are perfect minister or testimony times. Those are perfect opportunities in which God is setting you up for a miracle. In which as you press in and pray, maybe even with tears, God, I can't do this. I, you have asked me to do this and I can't. And I'm working so hard to provide for my family and I'm still coming short. Let God come in and invade your finances and set them in line and let him do miracle upon miracle to provide for you. This is the heart of God. God desires to do miracles in our lives. And I'm going to tell you this. He desires to get his reputation, not yours, not power lines, his reputation out there and in the workplace and in the marketplace because his heart to reach the lost is even greater than yours. That loved one you've been praying for for 25 years, he loves them more than you do. He loves them so much he was willing to send his only son to die for them. That's how much he loves them. Jesus sacrificed. I mean, it's just amazing for me that God would take on human flesh and be like me for 33 years approximately. And then for the rest of his existence, church, he would be both God and man. He will never be only God as he was before his incarnation. And for the rest of eternity, I'm not saying he's not omnipresent, he is, but he will forever be man and God. He sacrificed everything. He laid his life down. He took on himself my sins. And I know how hard it is just to grapple with the guilt of one sin. And all of my sins, gross sins, offensive sins to his holiness, were placed on his son Jesus. He died for those. He paid the penalty that I deserved. That is love. He loves those people more than you do. And I know how much you love those people you're praying for. God wants to reach them more than you do. He will extend his reputation ahead of you. She was willing to risk her life in order to align herself with the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. If she was caught in this lie to protect these spies, she would no doubt have been put to death. She risked her life. I probably have like 
maybe 60 seconds to address this issue that's probably glaring at you. Is it okay to lie sometimes? And I'm only gonna answer that question in brief because there's another question that's actually more important that we need to answer. Is lying ever okay? There are many instances in which people were honored for, for not telling the full truth. We look in Exodus chapter one in the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, and they did not tell the truth because they were told you must kill all of the Hebrew firstborn males. And they did not, but they told the Pharaoh that they had, and God blessed them. We could go through several situations, both Old Testament and New, and I am a man who cherishes the truth and cherishes the integrity, cherishes integrity. And I want to challenge you to do the same. And as I look at this, I would say there is but one reason in which God would ever permit us to not tell the truth. And that is in the face of our enemy when death is on the line. Every single one of these exceptions, and there's only a handful of them in the Bible, that is the one exception. The life was on the line, and they, were, they did not have to reveal the truth to their enemy. Now, we see this in sports. We see this in war. But these five instances did not always take place in war. Can I also say this? I'm 55 years old. I've been a believer in Jesus Christ for almost 40 years. 39, uh, uh, 41 years. There we go. I'm getting it straight here. 41 years. I'm, I'm doing the math really fast in my head. I'm getting confused. But 41 years. And I've never had to rely on that principle. And, and I share this with caution as far as the exception here because my concern is that a door may be opened and every time you lie, well, I had to. See, the Bible gives a... I'm, I'm going to probably tell you 99% of those times to 100% of those times, you're wrong. Very rare, but I want us to be able to move past that. And you may, have dis you may disagree with me on this issue. I know godly men and godly women would disagree with my conclusion here. I do not believe that I am obligated to tell my enemy the truth when death is on the line. However, if, should I go there? Some religions open the door wide. In the book of Koran, with regard to Muslims, they feel no obligation to tell infidels, which would be us, the truth. When we deal with them politically, please understand they are under no obligation to tell the truth. That is part of their religion. That is not what the Bible is teaching here, by the way. I do not want to open that door to lying for you. Some of you may be caught in this habit of lying, and it's terrible, and you need to be set free. Lying destroys us. If you're a leader, it will John Maxwell, guru of leaders, Christian man, he'll tell you right now that if you are a leader and you have been called on the carpet for lying, it will take a very long time for people to trust you again. I'm aware of this. Tell the truth. But here is the more important question. If I can find my place in my notes. What did her lying express? What was she doing? She was protecting God's plan for Israel. 
at the expense of her life. Do you see that? She was willing to risk her life so that whatever Yahweh God in heaven and on earth would be able to accomplish through his people, she was willing to lay all of her life down for this. That is nothing short of what God asks of us when we are searching for the truth, lost in our sin, wondering what even is truth. That's what Pilate asked Jesus. What is truth? It's kind of nebulous, it feels. Unless there's something out there that can give me direction. Hello? This is my starting place. This is where I believe God speaks truth. If you're interested, I would love to sit down with you and explain, now that I start with truth and I realize that there is a God in heaven, when I read through this, there are certain things that now fully convince me that this book was written by God. Messianic prophecies that were fulfilled, over 300 in Jesus' life, the destruction of certain cities that were so clear that would be one in 10 to, I'm trying to remember the exact, one in 10 to the eighth or ninth for them to be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled, the destruction of Tyre, the destruction of Babylon, great cities. And they were destroyed exactly the way God said they would be. The resurrection of Jesus. Many have come to affirm faith in Jesus Christ, Lee Strobel being one. You may have, we have some of his books back there. An atheist wanted to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Guess what? He realized categorically, definitively, Jesus rose from the dead. What? Really? And in being convinced of that truth, now God had to deal with his heart. God got past his mind. Now he had to deal with his heart and led Lee Strobel to that point of total surrender to Jesus Christ. That's really what I'm talking about here. That's what Rahab did. She laid it all down. She surrendered. And for her, that could have meant her life. That is what we are seeking to appeal to when we are extending God's kingdom. Not God's rules. God's rule in the hearts of men and women. For God to set up his rule in the hearts of men and women who are lost. It requires what Rahab did here. I'm willing to lay down my life. Jesus put it this way. You must deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. To take up your cross doesn't mean to bear with that grumpy husband the rest of your life or that neighbor that keeps harassing you or whatever it is. It, that is not the cross in Jesus' day was death. You must be willing to die for me, are you? This is the type of surrender and sacrifice that he called his disciples to. And he said, if you're not willing to give up everything for me, you can't be my disciple. I'm not going to pull any punches here. This is just the way it is. If you want to be my disciple, you got to lay it all down. And that's exactly what Rahab did. If I lose my life, I lose my life. But I will not expose you to the king. Because the God you serve, that's the true God and when you come could you rescue me could you rescue me that is the cry that needs to come from the lips of everyone who comes to Jesus would you rescue me rescue me I am lost and I'm in desperate need of rescuing come and rescue me 
And that is the cry of the heart that our King Jesus loves to hear and loves to answer. And he will come to your rescue.